Good afternoon or evening, wherever you are. I would like to welcome everyone to this forum on critical issues confronting China. This forum has been focusing on China's rise and its domestic economic, social, and political developments, as well as U.S. and China relations. What we have largely overlooked, though, was how the other nations may be responding to China's rise and activities around the world particularly the European countries and the African nations. And today, <clears throat> we are very pleased and honored to have a European expert on contemporary China to give us some insight on the reactions of various nations to the rise in China and these economic pressure and activities. He's Luke Patty. Luke is the senior researcher at the Danish Institute of International Relations Studies, but also Oxford University recruited him to be the lead senior research fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Luke has examined China and India's investment in oil in Sudan for more than 10 years and written a book on that. But then recently, he looked at the different countries around the world, including South, Amer South America or Japan, how they actually respond and react to China's rising power. With his studies, Luke has written books and published in journals like Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, and also on the most prestigious newspapers like New York Times, Financial Times, Guardian, on the contemporary China's activities. Then he published a new book how China loses, that's going to be the main focus of this topic today. And that book is published by Oxford University Press. I have read the book. I'm particularly gained the understanding of the complex role China plays in Africa or particularly in Sudan. For example, China 
not only invest in students oil and trying to explore and produce the oil and energy but china has to deal with the rivalry and war between the rebels and the sudanese government at the same time china played a third role chinese soldiers served in the un peace force that stationed sudan this is the kind of insight that luke has given us the complex role China plays in its foreign economic relationship. So without further ado, I'd like to turn the session over to Luke. But before that, Nick is going to give us some instructions about submitting your questions. Nick. Hi all, um, welcome or welcome back. Uh, if you've been here before, you know the drill. If you haven't, there's a Q&A tab at the very bottom of your screen. If you have any questions throughout the talk or during the Q&A section, just type your question in there. Um, if you want to submit it anonymously, you can do so. There's a box you can check. Um, if not, please just let us know who you are and what your affiliation is so we know who's asking the question. All right, thanks. Hi, well, thanks so much for that kind introduction, uh, Professor Xiao. Um, I'm very grateful uh, for this opportunity to speak with, with the group today uh, at the Fairbanks Center. And I, I'm really uh, thankful for, to the, the organizers for, for, for having me. And in first planning this event uh, last year, it was with a great pleasure to get in touch with the late uh, Professor Ezra Vogel. I didn't know him personally, but, but really his openness to me and my research was very encouraging and I know his, his passing is, is deeply felt at Fairbanks and beyond. Now, as someone who has followed China's rise in the world for some years now, I'm, I'm often asked uh, to explain China's perspective uh, here in Europe. Um, I'm often asked what lessons China is learning from its experiences in the world. And I'm, you know, expected to divine uh, what China's future behavior might be. Answering these types of questions is one of the jobs of sinologists uh, who work in international relations and politics, but I'm not one. Uh, I can rarely you know, provide comprehensive responses to what China might be thinking or what it might do. Uh, rather, for myself, and I think a growing number of, of research, researchers across various fields, uh, we did not go out seeking China, rather China came seeking us uh, because China's global presence has expanded so rapidly and so strongly in recent decades that it's important to all fields of studies. And my, my first encounter uh, with China was in the form of Chinese national oil companies in Africa, where I studied their impact uh, on Sudan and later South Sudan, as, as Professor Xiao mentioned. And understanding the interests and aims of Chinese actors is, of course, highly important. But my main focus uh, is really on the perspectives of the rest of the world towards China, what lessons other countries are learning about engaging China, and where these relations might be headed in the future. And this is the perspective I take in this book. Uh, it's not particularly to 
understand what China wants, but more so what the world wants from China. So I hope our, uh, this presentation and our discussion, particularly afterwards, can help to bridge uh, some of these perspectives uh, going forward. So what I want to do um, in the next 40 minutes or so is, first of all, uh, discuss some of the motivations of my work, uh, of this book in particular. I hope my slides are now visible. Um, and then uh, I want to go over basically three questions uh, about China's rise that I think deserve rethinking when we look at its various um, its various roles around the world. And finally, um, some conclusions, sorry, some conclusions of, of my work. Sorry about that. So. Okay. So the, really the, the premise of my book is that we live in a world where it is not only the United States and China that matter. I know this might be uh, a hard reality for many Americans and Chinese to stomach. Uh, both Americans and Chinese have a sense of exceptionalism uh, and in their world worldviews and thinking. Uh, even in foreign capitals, uh, China and the US uh, as big powers are often seen as dictating everyone's future. Of late, uh, a bombardment of, of media stories uh, and opinion pieces and research on the US-China rivalry has really uh, overtaken, I think, a lot of the debate uh, around the world of, of what's to come for the global economy and for global affairs. But my uh, impression is uh, from, from doing research on this book is that this is only part of the picture of, of, of the future of world affairs, um, that China's relationships with the rest of the world, particularly middle powers, are going to be critical, not only in dictating the direction of the US-China rivalry, but also the, the future of China's global influence. This is not to say that the bilateral relationship between China and the US is not important. Uh, together, they make 40% of the global economy. They command the world's two most powerful militaries. And they have impressive technological capabilities. But I think we've lost sight of the rest of the world, the other 60% of the global economy, its other major militaries and tech leaders. And that countries like India and Japan, Germany, will be very influential in dictating the, the shape of global issues such as overcoming the COVID-19 pandemic, addressing climate change or the future direction of free trade and use of technology. And when I, I place a spotlight on China's relations with the so-called middle powers in particular, like Japan and India and countries in Europe, what we see are, are fraying political ties, uh, new trade and investment concerns, and even barriers going up, and rising security tensions. I think other major powers out there, 
but also in a way developing countries are recognizing that engaging China in, in areas of trade, investment, finance, and technology offers benefits, but can also threaten long-term competitiveness and even foreign and defense policy autonomy. Now, none of this is to say that the US will somehow reemerge as the dominant superpower or that China will fade away. I think what goes on uh, in the Beltway and what goes on within the ringed roads of, of Beijing still holds critical importance to us all. China wields considerable power, there's no doubt. Its economy continues to grow even through this pandemic. And it's advanced its influence, particularly in emerging markets and developing countries in Africa, in Latin America, and developing Asia. But even in these regions, China faces new difficult challenges. So China is not preordained to dominate the future. Uh, and rather than look at US-China rivalry alone, rather than see one of these countries as omnipotent, I think we need to take a, a deeper look at the diversity of power out there today, because that's what I think will ultimately shape China's uh, future direction in, in global affairs. So there's, there's really uh, no better place to start to look at China's uh, global influence than to look at its global project, the Belt and Road Initiative, that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. This is Xi Jinping's project of the century. This is the Chinese president's foreign policy signature. And it aspires to, to harness hundreds of billions of dollars to finance and build various types of infrastructure, transport, energy, communications, but also to connect China to the outside world through industrial corridors, manufacturing links, and develop Chinese tech standards. The BRI arrived in much of the global South with much fanfare and appreciation, with some notable exceptions, particularly a certain populist neighbor China's star shines quite brightly in emerging economies and developing countries. Yet, I also think the Belt and Road is facing some challenges and that we're not necessarily asking the right questions about its impact. Because I think the debate on the Belt and Road in the United States in particular centers on whether the infrastructure finance it offers uh, sets a debt trap for host countries or is simply just business. Now, some argue that China's finance is purposely designed to ensnare partners in high debt so that China can then take control of strategic assets such as ports and railways. Others, though, see China's Belt and Road as simply commercially driven without too many strategic aspirations. More than anything, however, the Belt and Road, I think, is a promise of win-win economic growth and development that China is making to its partners. And this is really uh, the dream that an East African diplomat shared with me uh, when we met in Beijing some years ago. Uh, 
Uh, and like many foreigners, our, our conversation was on what was going on around us in, in the Chinese capital, the, the, the modern futuristic skyscrapers and infrastructure and the great leaps that China's made in its development in the last several decades. And for this African diplomat, China offered an alternative path for his country to follow, uh, one that didn't have America or the West's political conditions and lecturing, but brought economic development nonetheless. And this is how Xi Jinping has presented China's engagement with developing countries. At the Forum on China-Africa cooperation in 2018, he called on African countries to step on the express train to China's development. So I think that, that President Xi wants the Belt and Road to build China's political legitimacy in the world through, in particular, building new infrastructure and developing new trade, investment, and technological links. At the recent uh, Boao Forum, she even called for the Belt and Road's rules and standards to be expanded upon. China's becoming more confident in, in expressing that it wants its, uh, its rules and standards to grow in the world. China, of course, has its economic aims behind the Belt and Road to offshore this tremendous overcapacity it's built up in heavy industries since the 2008 a global financial crisis when China brought in hundreds of billions of dollars in stimulus through this new infrastructure. And many developing countries very much need this infrastructure and they welcome it. Um, Africa needs roads and railways and power and energy projects. Asia does as well. But there are some challenges facing the Belt and Road that I think are becoming more clear as time passes, as it expands. So I want to briefly go over those, the main ones that I outline in the book. And I think the focus needs to shift from not uh, from whether or not uh, it's a debt trap or just business, but to look at rather its development success or failure in the countries it engages. And I think there are some contradictions in China's economic and political aims behind the Belt and Road that make it harder for these positive development outcomes to come about. First, we know that China doesn't bring many political strings when it offers loans to developing countries, but it does bring considerable economic strings. And some of those are that the money that it offers as financial assistance is tied to the use of Chinese companies, contractors, construction firms, and Chinese products to build infrastructure projects. What this does early on is it crowds out local industry where the, of course there is often strong construction and heavy industry sectors as well. And it does so at a much higher rate than World Bank projects do, for example. Second, and I think more importantly, although Africa and other developing regions desperately need infrastructure, not any infrastructure will do. There, are, there is the necessity for infrastructure projects such as railways 
to generate new economic productive activity. And countries that have low borrowing capacities that invest in infrastructure that doesn't generate new trade, new domestic investment, and other economic spin-offs will find themselves facing new debt challenges. And we're starting to see this recently uh, as some projects uh, such as railways in East Africa struggle to pay for the debt that their countries have taken on. And China knows this well. Much of China's infrastructure, as impressive as it is, has failed to generate new economic productive activity according to, to, to some studies. Thirdly, I think what's missing from, from the Belt and Road Initiative is this massive offshoring of low-cost Chinese manufacturing jobs overseas. This was the idea of, of several prominent scholars uh, that thought that millions of jobs would leave China as costs rose and would head to various developing regions and spur on new development. That is taking place in some places, particularly in some Southeast Asian countries, but it's not universal. And Africa in particular is not receiving all too many large numbers of manufacturing jobs. We hear quite consistently about Ethiopia as a positive case of manufacturing development linked up with China's engagement. But Africa is much larger than Ethiopia, and we're not seeing this broad level of manufacturing going out of China. Many companies in China are automating, uh, and as I said, many of them are heading towards uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Bangladesh, and other locations closer to home. So translating the, belt, the promise of the Belt and Road into development success is hard. And I think this is gonna bring China into troubles the further it moves along if it doesn't adapt. And I'm not alone. I think in this thinking, uh, Chinese economists, Zhang Weiying and, and Shen Hong have argued that China at the moment is, is selling the wrong model through the BRI. It's not selling the true model uh, that China developed under. It's overselling the role of state-owned enterprises and central planning in China's own development and underselling the role of the private sector, the role of entrepreneurs, foreign trade and foreign investment in helping China develop. So we will need to see if the Belt and Road can adapt moving forward. Currently, however, we see sharp drops in some of the official finance that China's offering through, uh, through the Belt and Road. Now, the Belt and Road could come back as a digital health expansion, but I think this first act with its strong infrastructure thrust is coming to an end. And I, I think that the East African diplomat I met in Beijing will need to realize his country's ambitions through diverse engagement with China, with the US, with Europe and India and others, and that Africa has the potential to develop its own models for development. The second subject I wanna to talk to you about uh, this afternoon is, is China's relationship with Europe. 
And China's had really dramatic growth uh, in trade and investment with Europe in recent uh, decades. But of late, particularly in the last uh, five or six years, questions have risen that China is gaining new political influence in Europe through this economic engagement. And on your screens, you see a picture of, of Danish police, not too far from where I'm sitting today, ripping a Tibetan flag out of a Danish demonstrator's hands during the visit of Hu Jintao here to Copenhagen in 2012, the former Chinese president. And who he signed uh, a number of big business deals, witnessed those deals during his visit. But in the years to follow, political controversy arised when it was discovered that police had done this uh, act, ripping the flag out of the one demonstrator's hands, but also blocking demonstrators around the city that day in order for Hu Jintao's motorcade not to see them in order for the Chinese delegation to save face. And that this had actually taken place during quite a number of visits from China to Denmark over the last couple of decades. Now, dutiful journalism and parliamentary oversight in Denmark reacted to this event and the government commission is still unpacking what happened and who is responsible. But it really brings the focus on this values versus interests debate that takes place on China in the US, but also here in Europe. And that seems to dominate uh, discussions on whether, for instance, the European Commission is selling, uh, selling away sort of its concerns with human rights abuses in Xinjiang region for trade and investment possibilities with China. But Despite the importance of this debate, in the book, I unpack another one, and that's the economic side of the equation, which I think also deserves exploration. And that the fact that China has risen as an economic competitor for the European Union will really shape its relationship with Europe dramatically going forward. So, China became an economic competitor uh, to Europe because of, I think, two changes in the relations and, and one consistency. First, over the last decade, there's been an influx of Chinese foreign investment into the European Union. Between 2000 and 2017, uh, Chinese investment in the EU surpassed European investment going to China with 2016 marking this high point of 35 billion uh, investments from China coming here to the EU. Now, Chinese investments aren't very much like American investments in the EU. They are predominantly focused on acquisitions. Only 5% of Chinese investments between 2010 in 2019 were actually classified as greenfield investments, uh, developing new factories, service centers, and other activities that, that tend to build more jobs and growth. So the second change that happened on top of this new investment was that these investments were launched 
at a similar time that China released its Made in China 2025 industrial policy, which basically outlined a plan to take for Chinese companies to overtake their competitors in advanced manufacturing at home and abroad. So as European leaders were seeing new Chinese investments coming into Europe, buying European companies, many of them in advanced manufacturing, they also saw China come out with its new policy made in China 2025 to compete with European, East Asian, and American manufacturers. And this set off alarm bells because one thing didn't change in the relationship, and that's what was that the market reciprocity, the ability of European companies to invest in China was still not there. That China maintains investment restrictions at home that are four times higher than the OECD average. And in 2019, the EU officially designated China as an, as an important economic partner, but also a strategic competitor and also a systemic rival. And this goes beyond policy papers and sentiments. With China on its mind, the EU launched an investment screening mechanism that year and is currently pursuing anti-subsidy rules in order for its companies to compete at a level playing field with their Chinese counterparts here, here in the EU. Uh, Germany and others have, have raised new national barriers to investments and have been actively blocking Chinese acquisitions in the past several years. Recently, Italy has done the same for an attempted Chinese uh, acquisition of a semiconductor company. Now, of course, you're all well aware, I'm sure, that Europe and China have uh, a new investment, a provisional investment deal on the table that needs to be ratified by the European Parliament. Uh, this, of course, has added something new to the mix, but it's something that firstly needs to be passed by the Parliament, needs to be implemented, and needs to be enforced. And this, these are several mi milestones that aren't necessarily guaranteed. Another thing of note that I think is coming up in Europe is that the EU is not as economically dependent on China than many perceive. And this, I think, offers new strategic room for the EU to have not necessarily confrontational policies towards China, but more defensive policies, such as the new investment screening and, and national investment barriers. Because although the EU and China trade around 1.7 billion euros each day, the EU trades 30 billion euros in total each day. And as you can see, similar to the United States, China's trade has been generally rising with the EU. But at the same time, when you put this growth with China and the United States into the broader picture of European internal and external trade, you can see that all the external partners fade away because European internal trade represents around two thirds of total trade. 
For example, even Germany, uh, which trades nearly half of the EU, sends nearly half of the EU exports to China, has China as its largest partner, nonetheless has a pretty diverse trading portfolio. Uh, China represents around 8% of German trade, but the US is right behind it with seven. So is the Netherlands, so is France, Poland, Italy, and other partners, very close by to the levels that China trades with Germany. And this makes for quite a diverse group, not a dependency on China that I think is often argued and, and, and in the media. But I think what has made the difference is that uh, corporate interests, particular corporate interests in Germany still have higher sales dependencies on China. So this includes companies like Volkswagen uh, and, and others in the automobile industry and machinery industry in particular that have an average of around 15% of their sales revenues coming from China. So there's a debate underway, I think, even you know, to this day in Europe that's trying to unpack this economic relationship uh, with China and realizing that corporate interests do not always advance national interests. That even the, the German you know, Federation of German Industries estimates that 2% of jobs are generated from trade with China. That the EU has seen its global manufacturing, its share of global manufacturing steadily decline. And that even large European companies are starting to see strong Chinese competition, both in China, but also in third markets. Uh, the most striking example is the rise of Huawei um, here, undercutting the market share of Nordic telecommunications companies, Ericsson and Nokia. And in the future, we see Chinese electric vehicle makers and automobile companies like Geely and BYD and others possibly competing with the large German firms like Volkswagen. So some may see um, China driving a wedge between the US and the EU, but I think uh, there are still quite, there's still quite a way for this new investment deal between China and the EU to, to go to be, to be passed. And that there's still considerable disillusionment with China nonetheless. And this includes the European Commission still pushing for WTO reform, but also Central and Eastern European countries that had once and continue to have this group with China called 17 plus one group, um, that in the recent meeting with Xi Jinping, the EU members of the group, not all of them sent their heads of states to participate. And Lithuania has, meant, has indicated that it would be leaving the group altogether. That these countries in Central and Eastern Europe, many of them haven't seen strong trade and investment grow with China since making this group. And that they're not interested in loans, but interested in, the, in opportunities in the Chinese marketplace and Chinese companies coming to their countries to invest. And that hasn't been uh, panning out as they hoped. So Europe is still very much focused on this interest versus values debate, but
But at the same time, we're starting to see growing discussions and realizations of how China's relations with China actually improve welfare back in Europe and don't improve welfare back in Europe and, and are creating long-term present day, but also long-term competitiveness. And this is creating a more defensive Europe towards China. Finally, I want to go to Asia um, and look at how China's larger partners are adapting to its rise. And one question that's often risen is whether uh, China, sorry, whether the United States is building an Asian NATO to contain China's rise. This is often suggested by Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, among others, particularly when talking about this uh, defense grouping, the quadrilateral security dialogue, the quad between the United States, Japan, India, and Australia. Yet I think this doesn't capture the picture, the entire picture. Um, the story of Shinzo Abe, the longest serving prime minister in Japanese history, who recently had stepped down, exemplifies, I think, the reaction of many of, lar of China's large Asian neighbors to its rise. Of course, Japan has a long-standing rivalry with China, uh, a torn history with China, and current geopolitical tensions over islands in the East China Sea. And already back in 2007, uh, Prime Minister Abe went to New Delhi, visited India, seeking closer economic, political, and defense ties with China on his mind. And speaking to the Indian parliament some 13, 14 years ago, he called on a dynamic coupling of the Pacific and Indian oceans as seas of freedom and prosperity. And of course, India and Japan share democratic values and, and there are economic prospects between these, the two, the second and the third largest economies in Asia. But it was a concern with China that often, that, that, that brought these two countries together on, on defense cooperation. This took place long before President Trump came into office, long before I think the US was switched on to this idea of the Indo-Pacific, that it was an Asian-led pushback on China, not necessarily an American one. Japan's role, its sort of unsung leadership on some of these pressing issues of today is quite striking. Already back in 2012, Japan had went about developing an alternative supply chain in rare earths from China after it experienced several months of not being able to access these resources. And this is reflective of the ideas that, that US President Biden has, to, has today to do the same. But Japan was already doing this almost 10 years ago, uh, punching a hole, albeit a small one, in China's monopoly of, of rare earths and their refining and processing. And doing this by backing an Australian mining company to find the rare earths there 
and process and mine them, sorry, process and refine them in Malaysia, lowering Japanese dependency on China in rare earths from 87% in 2006 to 59% in 2018. Japan was also critical to the revitalization of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It kept the trade agreement alive when President Trump left it and rallied the 11 members and signed it to sign it in 2018. And of course, Japan under Abe continued to pursue defense cooperation with India. They now uh, have two plus two defense foreign minister dialogues and also an agreement to share one another's military bases overseas. And India's relations with China have changed quite strongly of late. You, you'll recall, recall the Wuhan summit between Prime Minister Modi and President Xi back in 2018, which was followed up by the Chennai Connect in 2019. But fighting the following year along their shared Himalayan border really destroyed hopes that they would work closer as regional partners. And for many, I think Indian observers really revealed China's assertiveness in the region. Since then, New Delhi has shed much of its initial hesitance, I think, to engaging the Quad. It's accepted Australia back into its Malabar military exercises along Japan and along with Japan and the US. And together for the first time, they did training op operations, these four militaries last year in the Bay of Bengal. India has also banned dozens of Chinese apps since the fighting last year, including TikTok, WeChat, on security grounds. And they seem to be joining a growing list of countries, including those in the Asia Pacific, that are limiting or blocking completely the role of the Chinese telecom company Huawei in their fifth generation mobile networks. That includes Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and to a certain degree, Singapore and Vietnam as well. And one you know, has to ask the question, if China wants to be a global leader in tech standards, how does it do this without India's 1.3 billion people on board. Finally, Southeast Asia is often seen as China's backyard. It's one of the next growth engines of the global economy, and China's integration with it on trade has grown tremendously. It, it's the region's largest trading partner, but the U.S. continues to be the largest investor in Southeast Asia, in the ASEAN region, and Japan strikingly, is the largest provider of finance for infrastructure, not only historically in the past couple of decades, but also in planned projects moving ahead. Even the, uh, a majority of experts polled in the ASEAN region said they would look positively upon their countries engaging more in the, in the quad. These are countries that typically want to tow the big power competition in their region, and I think many continue to do so. But they haven't moved away from their concern, security concerns with China. 
And that I think is also something that's was quite striking to me. You know, we often hear about negative perceptions towards China growing in North America and Europe of late. Uh, and this tends to create this, the West versus China uh, idea of, of the world. But over the last couple of decades, Pew Research surveys have also shown that positive views on China in, in countries like Japan, uh, Australia, Indonesia, South Korea have dropped by double digits. And the, you know, these are China's neighbors. These are some of the countries that know it best. They've long welcomed its growing prosperity because they've shared in it, but they've grown increasingly suspicious of Chinese investments and of China's military might in particular through the South China Sea uh, militarization. So Beijing, Beijing may see these changes in Europe as orchestrated from Washington, but I think that these responses are, are coming more so from the re region than China's leaders um, might care to admit. And that's an important consideration when looking at its future role, not only in Asia, but because Asia is, is, is the growth engine of the world economy, China's future role globally as well. So where does this leave us? In conclusion, you know, I hope that I've made at least a, a strong enough point for you to rethink the importance of the US-China rivalry in global affairs and the global economy. And I think China's ascend, ascendance is not necessarily guaranteed. It's not preordained. Its relationships in the global south and with other major powers will dictate the future extent of its rise. And I wrote the book really with the idea of pointing out these challenges, how these challenges may upset China's ultimate influence. And that even though China may become, and I think will become the world's largest economy in all measures very shortly in the coming decade, that it might nonetheless punch below its weight in terms of influencing the foreign and security policy decisions of, of others. This doesn't mean that the US will automatically rise if China's challenged, challenges continue. Uh, but I don't think we're in a world where, where China will be in charge. That said, I also caution and, and discuss in the book how the other major powers, although they've recognized many of the challenges that China poses, can need to more consistently work collectively to ensure that there are stronger international rules and norms to guide the behavior of China, but also other big powers, including the United States, that might violate those standing rules and norms going forward. That there are areas where cooperation with China is essential, uh, including on addressing climate change, including on poverty reduction and its role in the developing world. And there's cooperation that needs to be pursued where it can be. But there are also challenges that we shouldn't just push away uh, and consider that these are 
demonizations of China. Of course, those are out there as well. But I think the rest of the world, particularly these major powers that I've discussed today, are facing their own issues with China that are separate from the US-China rivalry. And I think Washington and Beijing, of course, need to try to accommodate one another in international affairs. But other foreign capitals, New Delhi, Tokyo, Berlin, and elsewhere, can still play a larger role in global issues that moving forward that I think they're often not given credit for in the American debate. I'll leave it there. Thanks for your attention. And I look forward to your questions and discussion. Thank you, Luke. Uh, that's a very concise and interesting and well-organized presentation. Thank you. You cover the whole world and, uh, <clears throat> and about the reactions and the pushbacks, you might say. Uh, I, uh, I noticed my colleague, the co-leader of this uh, forum, Bill Overhoff, has unmuted himself. So maybe he wants to ask the first question. Uh, I'll pass for now. Thank you very much. Oh, okay. I Thanks for a good, very good presentation. Uh, let me, uh, before I turn to the questions, you have quite a few questions posed already. I, I would like to start with my question. You gave an excellent presentation about China's economic actions and uh, also foreign policy. And uh, now the countries are really, I will call, awakening to the what's going on and the pausing. And uh, and also maybe uh, there's some pushback, okay? But my question is, do you think in Europe there could be a unite, unity of action? Because you point out some facts that Germany have particular interests and then let's say Norway and other countries may have different interests. Could EU act, act in unity to push back China? It's a great question. It's a difficult one, of course, too. Um, and I think the answer is, is that unity uh, in European uh, EU foreign policy decision-making has always been ideal, has always been an ideal, ideal goal, but it's not a very realistic one on, on many issues, including, including China. Um, but that being said, uh, we have seen some uh, particularly defensive policies pass uh, the EU and, and that EU countries are working quite collectively on them, including the investment screening, including many new national barriers to outside investment, uh, including today more news about potential new anti-subsidies legislation that might cut off more Chinese investment from within the EU. And I think 
you know, this points to the possibility, uh, well, you know, already the realization that some of China's avenues to increase its technological capabilities through acquisition have been cut off. China, of course, still attracts great foreign investment. It still has its own domestic innovation. But we now have to look at the fact that the EU has pretty much joined uh, the US and Japan in being very cautious about Chinese investment in advanced manufacturing and, and, and high, techno high technological industries. So I think there on the economic side, on the defensive side, the EU is in a sense acting as one. The question uh, of whether it can act more offensive, not necessarily confronting China, but advancing its own interests proactively in the world is a more difficult one for the EU. We've seen several large countries, including Germany, France, the Netherlands, pass new policies on the Indo-Pacific and engaging a broader Asia in trade and investment, but in also defense and security issues. And the EU has passed its own strategy. Now, what we now need to see is whether that actually moves forward in actuality. And, and that's uh, something I think we should watch and, and, and see. Um, the EU has recently announced a new cooperation with India on infrastructure globally. But it also had announced one with Japan just a couple of years ago that didn't seem to go anywhere. So there is that challenge for the EU to work collectively. Um, part of the issue will be whether it can settle these debates internally, uh, whether it can solve its issue with some countries, including Hungary, that have been blocking some of uh, its policies on, on human rights and recently an extradition uh, policy change. So that, that's definitely there undermining the collective force of the EU, but I think the EU can still do much in smaller groups. Okay, thank you. That's a very uh, full explanation. Uh, let me uh, go to the questions asked by the audience. Uh, one of the, I will start with a question by Yang Gu, uh, Fu, Yang Gao Fu. Uh, he or she is uh, holding the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, uh, stating that interest, I'm quoting the question, interest, not values, should guide American-China strategy. In your talk, you talk, you discussed in Denmark about the values, how that drives the conflict and tension between Denmark and China. And here's a statement says, interest, not values should guide at least Americans' China strategy. Does that apply to European or, or other countries? I think so. I, I think, you know, I can talk about the EU experience. Um, I think it is interests that have most strongly nuanced Europe's view of China, made it more defensive, 
uh, made it more aware of the competitiveness that China now presents to European industries. And that has been the driving force in Europe's new policies on China. Um, I would say that, frankly speaking, values, human rights, uh, democracy promotion are still, uh, you know, not the priority compared to, to those economic considerations. Um, that said, values still play a role in the relationships of many European countries towards China because they drive public attitude towards China, which puts up to a certain degree some barriers in the decision-making that political leaders here can make with China uh, concerned. And China has become, China's embassies and the Chinese government has become much more engaged in societal issues here in Europe. You know, pretty often minute issues such as an embassy calling on a film festival to not show a film about Hong Kong or about China's human rights issues. But nonetheless, events that are making news here and changing perceptions of China, that it's no longer uh, simply uh, an, an economic partner to Europe, but that it also can play a role in disturbing uh, freedom of speech and democratic processes here in Europe. And the Danish case that is still ongoing where Danish police either uh, blocked or rerouted uh, Chinese visiting officials away from demonstrations has really, I think, struck a chord with the public here of what its government has been willing to do um, towards its relationship with China. And that has upset quite a few people. So values still matter. Of course, Xinjiang uh, still matters to many Europeans. Um, but I, you know, at the same time, I think at, at the policy level, it's that competitiveness, it's, it's those hard interests that are, are more on the decision makers' minds. Thank you. Uh, thank you for clarifying, differentiate between, let's say, the freedom of speech and expression in, a, a, in your own country versus, let's say, uh, the human, value, uh, human rights values projected into China. And uh, they are different uh, when uh, Chinese actions interfere with other countries' domestic uh, actions. Uh, here's a question about from Liang. Thank you for a sobering talk. My question is, why do you think there's such a general concern over China's global rise? Why such common suspicion exists over China's rise? I don't think there's necessarily a, a general um, similar concern towards China and its rise. 
and I don't think it's a suspicion. I think it's an experience of countries around the world in different ways. So um, I would say, for example, in Europe, you know, as I, I discussed in the talk, I think it's, it's, it's definitely driven by one of competitiveness and concern with European competitiveness uh, when, when facing China's uh, you know, innovation and, 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 and uh, growth uh, in China and the world, uh, and that that might undermine European welfare. So I think that's where the concern is for many European leaders and European uh, corporate uh, executives and managers. Um, whereas, of course, the US, uh, I won't go in depth. Uh, uh, I think you've had many talks on this uh, in this forum, but the US you know, sees a more of a challenge. Its challenge as a global leadership under threat uh, sees a more of a security challenge to its global operations. And, you know, in India and in, in different parts of Asia, there is also that fear, that territorial fear of, of China's military might um, that isn't expressed very often here in Europe, but of course, India uh, and China's neighbors, such as Vietnam and others in Southeast Asia, certainly have experienced that through China's military activities in the, in the South China Sea. For the global South, you know, a, a fair deal of, of the world's population, as I hope I, I indicated, they look much more positively towards China. Um, a recent Afro-barometer Afro poll, so a poll of 18 African countries, pointed to China as the most positive external influencer in their countries, narrowly beating the United States. But the US uh, development model, US political model was still pointed to by those Africans polled as the model they would most like to emulate uh, over well over China, but also over uh, European countries and, and even African examples. So I think African countries uh, and, and others in the global South are not necessarily interested in being in China's orbit but interested in balancing and hedging and, and diversifying their engagement between uh, major powers and, and between uh, uh, regional powers. So there, there's nonetheless some concern among constituencies in those countries of, of a Chinese dominance. Um, and, and I think so therefore we don't, we don't have the same type of, of general concern out there uh, that it differs from place to place. Thank you. That was a tough question, and uh, you gave a good answers. Uh, here's a question from a poor B. I'm going to paraphrase it. Uh, he said China makes economic demands and not political demands. And uh, China used incentives like foreign aid to induce other countries but also China punish other countries when their uh, trade or actions do not please China. He asked, is the, the resentment and the pushback from the countries is because 
China punished these foreign countries economically? Right. Well, it's a good question. Um, so over the last, I would say, you know, 10 years or so, we've had a growing list of countries that have had um, China use sort of economic coercion against them, often, you know, in the form of, of trade restrictions that um, are in gray areas of health and sanitary reasons, but blocking, uh, for instance, uh, Philippine bananas uh, from coming into China because of then the, Fil the Philippines then decision on the South China Sea uh, and, 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 and uh, tri tribunals ruling, or much more recently, of course, blocking a long line of Australian exports into the Chinese market through new tariffs and, and other restrictions, and Canada uh, as well. Um, and I think, you know, of course, this fuels uh, negative perceptions towards China in these in these countries. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, in Australia, of course, this has built on deteriorating relations in the last in recent years. So it, it didn't start with this economic coercion. It didn't start with Australia's call last year for an independent inquiry into the COVID-19 outbreak. There was sort of growing tensions on different issues, the, the role of Huawei, um, the uh, allegations of foreign interference in Australian politics coming from China. But of course, the economic coercion builds on this. And it, it strikingly, I think, uh, what is interesting about it and, and, and what I write about in the book is that I still get a sense. Uh, again, I, I started this talk with cautioning people towards my understanding of China's intentions and future behavior. But when I look at these different cases, Australia, Canada, Norway was also targeted by Chinese uh, trade uh, coercion. In each case, China doesn't really put comprehensive sanctions or comprehensive measures on these partners. Um, it actually is very selective in the industries it picks uh, and I, my hunch is that it does this to not upset its own economic growth. Um, and my hope is that this means that there's still room, I think, for negotiation to improve ties because China's not overly upsetting these economies. Um, what, we, what many feared would be sort of a losses of tens of billions of dollars for the Australians over the last year has, has simply been in the single digits. Of course, people's livelihoods are upset if you're an Australian winemaker or a lobster fisherman, but China didn't turn away Australian iron ore. Um, for Canada, for example, Canada is the largest canola producer in the world. China blocked this for some time, but opened up again when it had food security concerns. It blocked Canadian pork for some time, but opened up again, seeing the ramifications of the African sw swine flu in China wiping out 40, 50% of the Chinese pig population. So it's important to recognize in these um, instances of economic coercion that China has interests too, 
China has trade interests, investment interests, that it's not too keen in upsetting. And I hope this offers some way for uh, negotiation um, because China hasn't done what the US has traditionally done and put strong sanctions, comprehensive sanctions on those that cross its foreign and security red lines. But it has upset views of China in these countries and it might, even when the trade measures are released, these views don't necessarily go away uh, at the same speed. Mm. Yes. Uh, here's a question, uh, it's a comment and you may want to <clears throat> take note uh, from an anonymous person. He or she said, I was struck by the graph you showed of EU, China and US trade relative to the intra EU trade. He's asking, is this a fair comparison? You're comparing the trade internally with the external trade. And if you compare the Chinese and US domestic trade with this external trade, what kind of picture will you get then? Great question. And I'm, I'm so encouraged when we move forward in unpacking this economic relationship, because I, I think for too long, we have been living in, in sort of a, um, you know, in a gold rush period where we believed, you know, there was only growth and gain to be made uh, in, in engaging China. Um, and of course we should continue to engage China. Uh, I don't suggest any decoupling, uh, but I'm glad that we're getting more nuanced in our understanding of the economic relationship. And that question helps us because I think China's own dependency on <clears throat> external trade has been dropping. Uh, in, in recent years. And that in turn, I think, allows it some more flexibility when it wants to coerce other countries. Um, I don't think, as I said, it's at the level that it, it could be uh, um, because China is still sensitive. But if Xi Jinping is, is, is successful in, in China's growing self-sufficiency because the Chinese market is massive. It's very diverse. Um, and if China is continue, able to lower its dependency more and more on external trade, then I think we might see its coercion increase in the future. Um, we might see it take a more American line. So I don't, I don't think it's an uh, unfair comparison. I think we should make that comparison with China's, the importance of Chinese external trade um, and, 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 and American, how important the American domestic market is compared to its external economic links. That's definitely worthwhile to do. Uh, and I think for me, it was important to, to make the European one, you know, because, you know, the EU is a common market, but these are still sovereign countries in many respects. So they do differ from China and the U S but I, it was important for me to indicate that their growth, uh, their economic basis is here in Europe. Uh, it's, not, um, it's not in China, it's not in the United States, it's not anywhere else. And that could be said for China and the US as well, certainly. Okay. 
Thank you. <laughs> because of time limits, I think this is going to be the last question. Uh, this uh, question is raised by Lawrence Sullivan. <clears throat> how the <clears throat> how has the previous U.S. action on trade with China, particularly raise the tariffs, affect common approach to China? In other words, the common pushback to China. I, I think the trade measures um, advanced under, under President Trump undermined uh, America's possibilities to work with its outside partners. Um, not only because I think particularly Europe uh, would like to see those disputes settled uh, multilaterally within the WTO, um, but also because at the same time, Trump had targeted uh, its America's key allies with, with trade measures as well, right? From the beginning, Canada, Mexico, Europe, Japan, Korea, um, and all this, I think, yes, put uh, the US uh, backwards, sent the US backwards rather than forward. And, and we see Biden now uh, with some success and with some struggles to, to try to uh, regain that trust and confidence with the outside world. And, and, um, and you know, I think there's still the concern, particularly here in Europe, of what comes after Biden. Uh, what comes even after the midterm elections, um, and and what is the state of American politics moving forward? Is it a trustworthy partner? Um, but that said, I still think Europe and, and Japan, India, and others can can still do a lot to advance multilateral trade rules and other international norms, with or without the Americans on board. And I, and I think that Japan offers a strong example of of. Of course, the limited possibilities in that, but nonetheless, uh, some achievements. Thank you very much. <clears throat> uh, you really broaden our horizon by taking this forum's presentations and focus on the world's reaction and uh, effect as well as pushback to Chinese uh, rise and economic policy. And I want to thank you for really offer the new knowledge and sensitivity to us. For those whose question was not being answered, I urge, I encourage you write directly to Lou for, your, for his answers. So we are grateful for your presentation. It was very clear very well organized. Thank you, Lou. Thank you. Thank you for your time and thanks for, for listening. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Take care.